Welcome to Breaking the Lathe. My name is Claire, and today we're going to be doing a post-mortem on the GameStop ordeal that occurred a couple weeks ago. I assume that most of you are familiar with that whole situation, uh, but the long and short of it is that a bunch of Redditors noticed that GameStop had more than 100% of their outstanding shares short-sold, so they bought the stock to force the short-sellers to lose money when they had to buy the stocks to cover their short positions. Um, it's a thing called a short squeeze. It's not the first time this has happened, um, but it's notable in that this is the first time that this was done largely by retail investors. If you want an in-depth explanation as to the mechanics behind it, uh, there's a True and On episode, episode 134, uh, which includes a pretty good breakdown of the mechanisms behind short selling and buying on margins, which is a big part of why this whole like app trading thing went down the way it did. Uh, it's a really good episode, and I do recommend that you listen to that if you want to get into like the details of the mechanisms behind it. But yeah, so I'm here to talk about how it's been portrayed and kind of the ideological slant of like those portrayals and the event itself essentially and kind of provide my own personal view of that situation because I think it's a really interesting one. So yeah, during the frenzy surrounding like the buying of GameStop, which was kind of that entire week of January 25th to the 29th, um, although like during the beginning of that week it was primarily just like GameStop and it was kind of it was sort of a story that was percolating in the media, but it wasn't really a thing that was being... Like, it hadn't yet become, like, this mass phenomenon yet. Like, it was really during, like, the middle of that week, around, like, the 27th, that it truly became this big, like, mass phenomenon, where it moved outside of Reddit into the wider culture, I guess. The, like, people outside of, like, the subreddit Wall Street Bets um, began to really buy GameStop. This was also when it sort of moved beyond GameStop into the other stocks like AMC and Nokia and BlackBerry and stuff like that. But yeah, during this week, there was this massive influx of attention to the situation, which, like I said, started as a result of these Reddit retail investors uh, buying this GameStop stock in a short squeeze. And there was kind of this feedback loop where as the media brought more attention to this, more people got into it, which brought more media attention, and so on, so on. And yeah, like, the reason why it was such a big attraction to a lot of these people who typically weren't investors, because it seemed like all these people were making a lot of money, like this was a stock that was just going up, and it seemed like it was through this, like, mass pseudo-coordinated effort. I don't want to say, I don't want to oversell, like, the coordination of it. Um, but yeah, this like pseudo-coordinated effort of retail investors on like this subreddit that was just sending this stock price up into the hundreds. And yeah, you know, if you don't have a lot of money and you see that, oh, if people just buy this and are just buying this because they're buying it because, you know, it's a meme or whatever, if that's causing it to go up, I'm going to buy it and my money will go up until the meme's dead. And that kind of feels like th that's sort of the crux of the ideology that really caused it to go massive, right? But yeah, so it's being bought by like essentially this loose amalgam of retail investors and there's not really any kind of ideological coherence to this. Like sure, you could say that it started on Wall Street bets that was kind of this somewhat libertarian, largely a political community. 
but it quickly expanded beyond the scope of what Wall Street Bets was. I mean, at the start of this whole thing, Wall Street Bets was like a couple hundred thousand people on a subreddit, and by the end of it, that subreddit was up to several million people. So this thing really grew beyond the scope of what that community initially was, so I don't think it's particularly useful to think of this as an event which had any kind of rigid ideological bent or coherence behind it, because this was very much a kind of sudden mass energy which really seemed to spring out of nowhere. Obviously, as the community uh, all coalesced around the subreddit of Wall Street Bets, because Wall Street Bets did serve as kind of a hub for it, there was a bit of taking on of the affectations of that community, but those affectations weren't necessarily pursuant to any ideological ends beyond a vague, petty bourgeois notion of making money on the stock market. So this hodgepodge of retail investors were buying the GameStop stock, and the stock is going up and up, and then on Thursday, this app that all these people who are typically not investors were using, Robinhood, it halts the buying of GameStop stock, along with a handful of other stocks that were being bought en masse, like AMC, BlackBerry, and Nokia. You could still sell the stocks if you had them, but you couldn't easily buy them, because Robinhood was the primary platform that was being used, because it didn't require the kind of monetary margins in accounts that most trading platforms required, and it was also a very simplified and gamified interface. So it was very easy to use for investors who typically weren't investors, right? But yeah, it was this moment when there was kind of a shift in the establishment and media response to the situation, because up until this point, the response to the whole GameStop situation was very much the media and politicians playing defense for finance. They were talking about this being kind of a reckless, get-rich-quick scheme, and that a lot of people were going to get burned. But the moment that the buying was halted on Robinhood, that tone shifted, and you got figures ranging from Elon Musk to AOC all calling out the halting of buying as this undue interference within the market. And I think that that shift demonstrates sort of when it became kind of a quote-unquote populist rallying point. You could say that this signified something that was transcending political boundaries, that it was a point of unification, but I don't know. When I see something where big capital, people like Elon Musk, people like, uh, you know, Chamath Palihaptia are unifying with something that's perceived as a popular movement, I think that that kind of warrants further investigation because... A true popular tension with capital would necessitate a kind of class antagonism if it was truly going to confront or transform capital relations. Which is why I get kind of irritated with these common comparisons that I saw that were sort of obnoxious. You know, these comparisons with Occupy Wall Street, the idea that this was some kind of mass upheaval of the stock market, that the retail investors were in some way taking on Wall Street, which was certainly what became the refrain in that moment. Um, but it really isn't true. Like, I think the people were flocking to this stock and to this community for, you know, their own disparate individual reasons. Um, and while all those actions may have been driving in one direction, they were doing so for different reasons. And I think the most popular reason for that was to make money. And some people would dress that up in fancy language of sticking it to hedge funds that shorted the stocks or whatever. But... I think the real thing that happened is that people saw other people raking in money, and they hopped on board to do the same. And this isn't to assign a moral judgment to that. Uh, 
In fact, I find that rationale to be the most sensible one, right? You see an opportunity to make money. And I mean, if you understand that the money that you're going to be making uh, is going to be coming at the expense of hedge funds with large short positions, I mean, fuck them. Uh, make your bag. And honestly, that's fine. I totally get that. Like, I'm not going to judge anyone for making that kind of mental calculus. But this rhetorical oppositionality to big capitalist buying of GameStop was acting on that rhetoric in a way that was very explicitly good for capital. So that's why I don't think that this rhetoric really works. Because volume profiteers and those with larger capital stakes all stood to gain far more from the whole ordeal than any individual retail investor. Like, the people who made the big uh, investments into it that moved... Because you, you'll notice that the moment it really caught on into public consciousness, it stopped moving up. And you could say, oh, this is because uh, Robin Hood halted the buying, which, you know, I'm sure is true to an extent. But I think the real thing is that at that point, the big movers that were getting in on it were done getting in on it. So it, it jumped up, sure, as all these smaller retail investors were getting on, but that was when the big investors were getting off. So they all were, you know, selling their stock. And that's why, you know, BlackRock, people like Elon Musk, they all made bank on this. Like, I think BlackRock made like $16 billion off this whole GameStop ordeal. So it was very good, actually, for capital itself. It was only hurting, uh, you know, the hedge fund, Melvin Capital or whatever, that had this short position. And this kind of financial cannibalization among capital happens all the time. And I think that that's why, you know, it became sort of fine to support it is because there was kind of this recognition that, oh, this is just this thing that normally happens happening once again. Like, I, I could have seen, you know, an Occupy-like movement emerging from the aftermath when the proclaimed ideological ends of the short squeeze failed, but even that I wasn't ever particularly hopeful on because... It required recognition of the insufficiency of the consumer action uh, itself to confront capital, which I don't think that that was a conclusion that was come to in the aftermath of this whole thing. But I think that this comparison to Occupy Wall Street really falls apart because it's only being made in a very superficial way in that it was ostensibly opposed to Wall Street. Like, Occupy itself was a mass protest movement of people going to these spaces and physically occupying them. And the reason why you get people shouting, you know, get a job or whatever at physical protests against the protesters is because these kinds of protests are broadly understood to be a withholding of labor in some form. And in this whole GameStop debacle, you'll notice labor hasn't been talked about once. And the reason why is because this isn't, you know, a proletarianized struggle. No matter what you're doing, you're still just buying stocks. In this whole situation so that's still acting very much in accordance to the systems of capital so it's really a petty bourgeois manifestation of oppositionality to capital and like while blackrock was able to make billions and amc was able to take bankruptcy off the table as a result of all this activity those didn't become the main story the main story was now this heroic struggle of the little guy against the hedge funds it was these retail investors who were standing up to wall street but yeah, like I think that that actually makes sense, right? Because when you center the story on these consumer actions attempting to confront capital, you no longer have to really talk about capital itself. Uh, you can be like, no, this was good. And instead you can talk about, you can, you can get to justifications, I guess, of why these consumer actions failed to adequately oppose capital 
and to achieve their ends. Um, because while the stock market and hedge funds weren't weakened by the short squeeze, because this was a heroic struggle against them, you can say, well, why didn't this work without really addressing the fact that this wasn't really ever oppositional in the first place? So you get some justifications along the lines of, well, if Robinhood hadn't restricted the buying of GameStop, it would have gone higher, which, you know, I mean, fundamentally, that's just cope. I mean, it's disregarding the underlying truth that no matter what, this was always an action that was going to be taken on uneven footing. And so I think that kind of the cope nature of that kind of set in because while people continued to be mad at Robinhood, I mean, Robinhood eventually did allow buying to happen again, and it didn't all of a sudden bring back all this activity. GameStop had sort of stopped spiking. And I think that, you know, you get some different conclusions that were reached out of that. I think the two most popular ones, because, you know, I think they are the most popular ideological tendencies within, like, the media and broader culture, are, you know, sort of the libertarian one and the neoliberal one. And both of these kind of have the same sort of premise, which is that there is one set of rules for big capital and another set of rules for the retail investors, which, you know, is a fundamentally true enough uh, premise, I guess. I would, you know, I'd add in a little bit more nuance, but, you know, it, that's fine as a premise. And both the libertarian and the neoliberal sort of have different solutions to that premise, though. The libertarian one being that through deregulation, uh, you can achieve a freer and more transparent market uh, where the government doesn't interfere with retail investors' capacity to participate within that market. Now, I didn't actually see that kind of conclusion gaining much footing in the aftermath of this whole situation, and I think that the reason why that failed to gain much footing is because there was a broad recognition that capital was heavily invested into Robinhood, and that regardless of the actual rationale behind Robinhood's decision to halt the buying of GameStop, there was a broad recognition that Citadel, which was this uh, hedge fund that was heavily invested into both Robinhood and uh, Melvin Capital, which was the hedge fund that had the short position in GameStop, uh, there was a recognition that Citadel could have pulled strings to make Robinhood halt buying. And I think that that recognition alone was enough to kind of dissuade the libertarian conclusion there. So the neoliberal one became a much more saleable conclusion in response to this, which was that the duty of the government is to facilitate the uh, market such that retail investors and big capital can participate in it equally and fairly. Both of these conclusions kind of exist. They both exist to justify a petty bourgeois class position attempting to confront capital and to, you know, maintain that sort of petty bourgeois stake alongside capital. Which is why this really reminds me a lot of the old, like, Main Street versus Walmart conflict that played out a lot during sort of the shop local campaigns of, like, the 90s and 2000s. I think a lot of people forget about those shop local campaigns and stuff like that because they did fail. There was a lot, there was much ado about, you know, supporting your rural main streets when the Walmart came into town. But if you look at all these towns now, main streets dead and Walmart's there thriving. But yeah, so this really seems to me like relitigation of that main street versus Walmart 
scenario happening, uh, but this time on the stock market rather than in the arena of business directly. And this kind of confrontation is always doomed to fail. And I think to understand why this effort is always doomed to fail, I think it's important to understand the relation that the petty bourgeois has to capital. Uh, which is that it is still a part of capital. It just sort of serves as a vanguard, I guess, for capital expansion. What I mean by that, I guess, is that, you know, these small businesses, these landlords, these retail investors, these all represent small ownership stakes within a market that are not yet subsumed into the algorithmic process of the grander structure of capital. But they all are, you know, demonstrating the market within like a niche position. I guess what this means is that you know, the small business is staking out, a, I guess, a niche within a market that making it big with that small business would be that small business, you know, being subsumed within the grander structure of capital by being, you know, bought out or, you know, expand to the point where it has a sizable market share within capital. Uh, similarly, the landlord has a real estate speculation position that is that it is essentially hoping becomes noticed by developers to the point where it can take on a larger stake within grand, the grander structure of capital. And the retail investor is, you know, taking out a niche stock position on the hopes that the movements of grander capital will cause that position to grow. Um, because none of these petty bourgeois positions are large enough by themselves to cause movements within the market writ large, but sort of the idea of making it within these petty bourgeois positions is being subsumed into that grander structure of capital. It's that your niche position is successful enough that you can join the ranks of, you know, the bourgeois aristocracy. And that, that is fundamentally what the idea of the American dream is. It's always been a very petty bourgeois concept because it's the concept that the small capital holder uh, becomes basically a delectable enough morsel that larger capital takes notice of it and wants to make it one with itself. It's that lack of class tension between the petite bourgeois and larger capital that renders any of these kinds of confrontations to be doomed to fail, because it would essentially require capital to behave irrationally. All of these relations are not based in confrontationality, it's based in a desire to be subsumed within capital. And as I said earlier, the uh, financial cannibalization of capital, like that's a very commonplace thing, that is a desirable thing, that is the American dream. And I think that, you know, once it became apparent that that was the extent of this whole action, that was why, you know, it became very easy for the media to shift tack here because they realized that, oh, it was just this process. It was people essentially asserting or attempting to assert their capacity to live the American dream. Now, the American dream is in and of itself, you know, not really a viable concept, uh, particularly not a viable concept at a larger, more popular scale, but it's always been sold to the American public as that. And I mean, even outside of America, that's kind of the understanding of the American dream. It's that you can, you know, start a business and make it big. And that's why I don't think that there's going to be really any retaliation against this. Like, you might get a few people getting an SEC slap on the wrist for, you know, the spike of volatility that caused a couple of, like, hedge fund investors to shit themselves. But 
ultimately this was capital operating within its own parameters and it was serving an agenda that very much is in line with kind of the propaganda surrounding society that capital wants to maintain. And when I say petty bourgeois, I do mean that in a very specific like class relation type of way. Because like the retail investors involved here, sure, there were some who were as a generalized class formation capable of wielding their capital in the formation of, you know, retail investments and stuff like that. But the vast majority of these people were new investors who had never invested before. So it was people who typically aren't members of the petty bourgeois attempting to assert a petty bourgeois position and join those ranks. So it was it was very much an instance of attempted class ascension through relation to capital. But I'm not using petty bourgeois to say, you know, I think all these people are, you know, vaguely well off or reactionary or anything like that. No, I mean it specifically as a small stake in capital ownership that is seeking to be subsumed by grander capital. I think that you can kind of get the proof that these people were not your typical petty bourgeois investors in that they all had to download Robinhood. Like, I mean, if you look at the download numbers for Robinhood during that week, it was through the roof. Uh, and it's because these were largely proletarian individuals who saw fit to attempt to assert that petty bourgeois claim in ownership in the hope that that capital subsumption due to the petty bourgeois being that sort of vanguard for capital would result in their benefit. Which is, as I said earlier, the very definition of the American dream. Like, that is what this was. Is It was a, like, lightning-in-a-bottle moment of basically a test of the American dream. And it failed, which I guess that was sort of the big takeaway from this, is that in a moment where, you know, the broader populace attempted to test the concept of the American dream, it failed, and it's just not being talked about in that way. It's being talked about as this kind of heroic struggle without recognizing what it represents in terms of the broader narrative of American culture. And that's why I think that there is a useful energy that can be harnessed from this whole ordeal. Because I don't think that this occurred as a result of any sort of broadly popular faith in the idea of the American dream. In fact, I think that the reason why it was tested is because there's very specifically not much faith in it. But if ever it were going to happen, it would be some sort of cockamamie scheme like this that would, you know, allow them to do it. And on top of that, as much as the shine is starting to wear off the idea of the American dream writ large, I do still believe that that is a big part of kind of the air of American culture. Like it is still this kind of idea that a lot of the American populace is um, fascinated by. It's something that everyone still wants to believe is true and possible. And I think that that's also part of why it was such a saleable moment in the media. It's why it was able to have that kind of feedback loop is because it was a very consumer-friendly image of political action because it was a political action that very directly represented the fulfillment of the American dream. 
And that's also why I think that there was able to be this very broad, sudden shift in rhetoric surrounding it from the media and things like that, because both the Democrats and Republicans are capable of uniting because they both recognize that there is significant popular energy aligned against the failures of capitalism to provide a kind of standard of living, which is understood broadly to be warranted to the populace within the imperial core, if only to enable us to function as the consumer of life last resort for the global economy, of course they're going to unite on an instance where that popular energy is attempting to reassert itself in the form of a very propagandized way of talking about these things. If you remember all of these uh, shop local campaigns and stuff like that, like that was big in media. Everyone was saying, oh, you should support your Main Street. You should support your, you know, local small businesses instead of shopping at the Walmart. And I mean, no matter how many times it was said and how much everyone seemed to agree on it, it didn't happen because it would require the consumer to act irrationally when the consumer has no unifying class structure or class relation or organizational structure to actually affect that kind of unified vision or whatever, particularly in instances like this where it would require not only the consumer to act in concert with a unified vision that they just cannot have, but also to act irrationally. So of course the Democrats and Republicans can both unite around this instance where the energy is converging in this way that doesn't represent a proletarian coming together of workers to assert a unified interest against capital. Because that is itself the problem that both the Republicans and Democrats are trying to resolve. They're oppositional to one another along cultural lines, but aligned with one another in class interest in the fear that the consolidation of capital has been steadily resulting in a loss of faith in petite bourgeois ideation of the American dream of being a small capital holder who makes it big upon being subsumed into larger capital, and that the proletarianization of the populace could lead to the workers overcoming to some degree the cultural boundaries set before them and asserting a unified class interest as labor that could genuinely threaten capital and end the process of gradual degradation and immiseration of the workers. And I think that that's a big part of why among these quote-unquote populist circles, there's still this desire to make working class a term denoting wealth or cultural signifiers rather than it being a position intrinsic to labor. Because, you know, whether Joe Biden or Ted Cruz or AOC or Josh Hawley, like all these people, when they talk about representing the working class, they all seem to be talking about representing this sort of culturally signified ideation of the working class rather than speaking specifically about any kind of labor relation to capital. And when you eliminate that labor relation to capital, like that's how you get these terms like professional managerial class or, you know, service workers or, you know, blue collar workers. These are all these kind of vague and vapid and really hollow terms that don't actually contain within them any actual understanding of class relation, because instead that class relation is supplanted with these demarcations of wealth or aesthetic appeals to what work is being done. And when that happens, like when you have these uh, wealth demarcations and these aesthetic demarcations creating these identities, I guess, that are no longer being built around class relations get sort of this uh, shift in what is perceived as desirable or 
you know, what are the grandest goals of any sort of political project by these identities, because it's no longer focused on a class relation to capital. Uh, so rather than the grand project of any of these identities being, you know, uh, shifting the relation to capital to benefit the workers, it's about, at most, vaguely social democratic uh, redistributive measures. And that's not to say that I oppose these redistributive measures. On the contrary, I think that they're necessary in the short term to alleviate the worst excesses of the current uh, economic conditions. But by itself, these measures are nothing but stopgaps because the mechanisms of capital will simply readjust to any new paradigm which does not fundamentally shift the relations between labor and production and extract the redistributed wealth once again. Uh, and you know, you return to this accumulation of wealth. And it's in this condition that it becomes quite easy for petty bourgeois ideas to take root within these identities, as long as those petty bourgeois ideals are still wrapped up in this kind of aesthetic oppositionality to the super rich. That's why you get crony capitalists or whatever, rather than it being actually talking about capital. It's just about bad actors, because the class dimension is stripped entirely from this whole conversation. And as long as that class dimension is stripped from the conversation, you're not going to get any sort of substantive change. Because like I said, I do think that these redistributive measures are to an extent necessary, but that is the limitation, that is the grandest designs of these identities. And I honestly think that that's almost a necessary certainty to capital uh, to provide that, at least within the imperial core, because as capital extracts more and more, the imperial core is still affected by that process. And as the imperial core, as consumers in the imperial core are less capable of fulfilling their role as the consumer of last resort, there's going to need to be some sort of redistribution simply so that they can fulfill their end on the demand side of the global economy. Capital needs the consumer of last resort to continue to exist in order for them to fill their role in capital's necessary struggle against the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. Although whether we get those redistributive measures that I find inevitable first or climate catastrophe preempts it. I can't really make any estimations on that. They both seem to be somewhat imminent. But what I will say is that I think it's becoming increasingly important to recognize when energy to confront capital emerges, and on top of that, to propose solutions grounded in, you know, material necessities to confront capital itself, rather than, you know, these kind of stopgap measures and to sort of break from these commodified aesthetic signifiers of identity. By that, I mean, you know, terms like PMC or service workers or blue collar workers, and instead, you know, reorient toward an actual proletarian understanding of the working class. Because that's the only way that we're going to get any sort of substantive change rather than, you know, this constant mere acquiescence to spectacle. And this was an interesting instance because I feel like no one really had any ready-made track to attempt to direct those energies because it was a very different formation of popular energy than we're all used to. I think a lot of people want to compare it to Occupy because of the aesthetic of the spectacle surrounding this whole GameStop situation, but it was unique in that it seems like the first instance I can think of as like an attempt at a truly neoliberal in agenda 
popular political action. Uh, because everything else I can think of that, you know, even if it resulted in neoliberal ends, was not so explicitly a formation of neoliberal political goals from the outset. And I think that that's kind of part of why it was funny, right? Is because, you know, it was such a bizarre inversion of expectations of popular political action and popular political energies. It's hard for us to imagine how to really direct that energy because it was from its outset very alien to, you know, any sort of proletarian understanding of struggle. And trying to direct it toward a proletarian understanding of struggle, you know, that in and of itself is kind of a tricky, it's a tricky proposition. I don't know, like the fundamental mechanisms of the thing make it hard to direct it in that direction. And I don't want to oversell the idea of it being a particularly directed or intentional thing, that it was like this neoliberal project, right? Like, I don't think that anyone was thinking from the outset, oh, I'm just going to do this neoliberal political action and it's going to catch fire, right? Like, I think that it took the shape that it did because it was just kind of this incoherent meme thing that sprung up out of nowhere. And given that that neoliberal policy is sort of the bulk of the political ecosystem that we're all enmeshed within, it makes sense that there's going to be a compatibility there with it that's going to seem otherwise like an incoherence because that's what we're all inculcated with. But yeah, I guess in conclusion, it really did seem to me like it was this sort of last grasp at the notion of the American dream or whatever, you know, this potential for a life-changing ascension into the higher rungs of class relations. Even if, like, it wasn't spoken about in those terms and was very explicitly ignoring those terms. Uh, and I think that understanding, you know, the class relations at play with this particular action are important because I think that that's how you can begin to form a means of directing energies like that when they emerge in the future. Because I don't think that this is the last time we're going to see any sort of petty bourgeois or neoliberal political action like this. And I think that that's part of why, you know, the response to it was so interesting was because I think that it was much more ready-made for the media to respond to than people with a more material understanding of the world. Because, yeah, it really did shift very swiftly from this idea of, you know, it being a reckless or dangerous thing to this thing that was pretty wholeheartedly embraced by basically every institution you can think of uh, in like all spheres, you know, politics, culture, economics, like all of these people, like they decided that, no, this was a thing that they supported. Um, and I think that the reason why is because why they were hostile at first was because it was clear that it was an instance of popular energy taking shape uh, in a kind of formation that seemed oppositional to Wall Street. But the moment that they realized that it was taking shape in a formation that was sensible to the status quo and was so very easily subsumed by it, I think that that's why there was that rapid shift in tenor. I think it's important to recognize that there likely will continue to be new emergences of energy in ways that are more representative of general culturally understood alignment, such as, you know, this vague aesthetic idea of the working class that is actually more of a cultural signifier than an actual class relation and can have, you know, petty bourgeois ideas grafted onto them as a result. As those continue to be commodified and drift further and further from class solidarities, I guess the challenge set before us, if we ever want to truly become liberated from this trend of gradual immiseration brought about by capital's necessary struggle against the tendency of the rate of profit to fall, it requires breaking through those commodified alignments that can't wield the kind of political power required to bring about liberation. Well, I was originally going to break down the Nevada bill, which reinvents the company town, but 
This conversation went a little bit longer than I intended, so I'll have to do that in the next episode. Thank you once again for listening to Breaking the Lathe. My name is Claire. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at Ice9Ocean, and you can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash breaking the lathe. I'll talk to you next time. Bye. Seven days ago, they said it could not be done. Seven days ago, we joked online about just how powerful a pillow company could be. To the believers, those who dared to imagine a pillow company could be about more than just pillows. Thank you for turning our wildest dreams into reality. Rest assured, Good Pillow is well underway. From day one, we've set out to create a pillow company that is, simply put, good. This seemingly straightforward idea stems from the mindset that everyone deserves a good night's sleep, coupled with the belief that we deserve to feel good about the brands we choose to support. Good Pillow's commitment to being a quality, ethical, and sustainable company exists at the forefront of all our business decisions, large and small. Why? To inspire a new generation of Americans to live the American dream. By giving back and supporting causes you believe in to create a true conscious consumer movement, all while getting a good night's sleep. Here's what we mean when we say good. Good Pillow pledges to support charitable organizations working to improve the lives of everyday Americans and people across the world. Good Pillow pledges to have an active dialogue with its customers regarding which causes it will allocate a percentage of profits to. Good Pillow pledges to be sustainably sourced and to be environmentally accountable. Good Pillow pledges to employ well-paid, unionized manufacturers. Good Pillow pledges to be made in America. Good Pillow pledges to place a strong emphasis on hiring those who have traditionally struggled with seeking employment, including veterans, refugees, people with disabilities, and people who are formerly incarcerated. Good Pillow pledges to fill our board of directors with people who actually represent America. We've seen companies and leaders rely on symbolic gestures as a substitute for real change. We commit to ensuring our actions demonstrate the depth of our commitment. Good Pillow pledges to appoint a chief progressive officer to its executive team, whose sole purpose is to ensure that we stay true to our vision. We'll be honest, this isn't going to happen overnight. And that's because we're committed to doing this the right way. Though we've spent half our lives on pillows, we can't say we know everything about pillow manufacturing. That's why we're not sacrificing quality for time. We must invest in our foundation to make good on our promises. At present, Good Pillow is in the midst of negotiating and solidifying key details with our board of directors and 